It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling Gulf Coast is the inspirational voice of Gulf Coast fishing and conservation. Hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist, conservationist, and flounder revolutionary, Chester Moore. Be ready for a relentless pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of fishing adventure. Welcome to Higher Calling Gulf Coast. This is Chester Moore. If you've been listening to the program long, you know we're running public service announcements for one of my favorite conservation groups, the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. And uh, basically their mission is to conserve the flat slam. And this is a flat slam series. We're talking, of course, the bonefish, the tarpon, and the permit. And to talk about that kind of mysterious, elusive fish, the permit, we have Dr. Aaron Adams, the Director of Science and Conservation for the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Welcome to Higher Calling Gulf Coast. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I thought I caught a permit in a canal by my house. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had a little field guide and, um, I live here in Southeast Texas and I'm looking at it, it look kind of like a permit. And I went and I realized what I actually caught was a pompano. Right. And, uh, it was the first time I was like six years old and I, and I'm, I was pretty sure it was a permit. You know, I was like, Oh my God, I caught a permit. And it was a little pompano, which was pretty exciting. But, um, a pompano for a lot of Texas anglers, probably far in appearance is the closest thing someone could get to a permit. Uh, some people confuse the Jack Crevel, other things like that they've never come across. But the permit is actually um, probably one of the top sport fish in the world. Yeah, it's kind of like the doing the research on them is kind of like fishing for them. Okay. Just when you think you got them figured out, they uh, they tell you that you don't. Is that there always seems to be a mystery, a challenge, and that kind of stuff. But just kind of get us caught up on exactly what a permit is and that basic life cycle of a permit. Um, okay, so permit. Um, they're, uh, the species we fish for in, say, Florida and the Caribbean, um, that, and into the Gulf of Mexico, that's the extent of its geographic range. Mm-hmm. There's related species, same genus, different species, um, in the Pacific, tropical Pacific, say in Australia. Um, we don't know really much of anything about those other species. But the one that we fish for, uh, around here, um, they uh, spawn during summer mm-hmm. um, on offshore uh, reefs or, in the case of Florida, uh, on some offshore wrecks or artificial reefs. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, um, a week after full moon is common. Uh, in Florida, uh, for example, they'll spawn from, say, April uh, through July. But uh, down in Belize, uh, they'll spawn uh, nine months out of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, a longer spawning season, although there's different peak uh, months. Sure. Uh, when they, they spawn offshore, uh, it's called broadcast spawning. Uh, large groups eject the eggs and sperm into the open water and eggs get fertilized in about a day. They, they hatch into small larvae and, uh, spend, uh, two, three weeks, uh, floating around in the ocean, um, before they, if they're lucky, find their way into shallow, shallow waters mm-hmm. and those uh, very small permits maybe the size of the dime when they first show up they need uh medium energy sandy beaches okay um and uh the, the concern about that from a conservation point especially in the caribbean is those beaches are the ones that uh, 
resorts like to develop. Oh, yeah, that makes <laughs> um, sense. Or, or in Florida, those are the beaches that uh, uh, they get renourished um, due to erosion, mm-hmm. um, which is a threat. And then as those fish grow, um, they expand their habitat use, start using deeper sand flats and grass beds. Uh, and then eventually are the big ones that we see on the flats. Um, where there also be, appears to be a bit of a contingent that um, pretty much stays in, in the offshore environment on the offshore wreck. Mm-hmm. So you basically have like almost like in some instances like a red drum, you'll have some red drum that are offshore because uh, we've caught in Texas, you know, 18-inch red drum, 30 miles offshore, and you'll same place you're catching a 45-inch red drum, and then you'll catch the same fish in the bay, you know. So it's really interesting to see that they're kind of divided up like that. And uh, let's talk about growth rates. So let's say some guy goes out in the flats, he's fly fishing, you know, he casts out there and he gets him a four or five pound permit. How, how old will that permit be? Um, a four or five pound permit, that's probably just a couple few years old. They're pretty quick growers. Okay. Um, which is an advantage for them. You know, the opposite of the tarpon would take a long time mm-hmm. before they mature um, or get big. Um, or 10 years you know, for a permit, um, it's a handful of years uh, before they start um, you know, get to that size that we might pursue them um, on the flats or even on the wrecks offshore. You know, they're such a beautiful fish. Uh, are, they, are they related to a pompano at all? They are. They're the same genus mm-hmm. as pompano, mm-hmm. different species. And they're close enough in appearance that for a while in Florida, they were essentially managed as the same fishery. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in some instances, uh, uh, juvenile permit will hang out with, or can be caught with pompano. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we were uh, seeing a decline in the permit population in parts of Florida, uh, we worked with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission to uh, split those two species as far as management is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, so now there's different regulations for pompano and permit. Um, but you can tell the difference. The, the permits kind of have a, what you might call a, a steeper or higher forehead relative yeah. to the pompano. Mm-hmm. Uh, they often will have kind of an orangish, yellowish on the belly, uh, which a pompano generally sometimes does, but generally not so much. Uh, their dorsal and anal fins on a permit um, tend to be longer uh, and get a black edge to them, which the permit don't, or excuse me, the pompano don't. Um, so, yeah, with a with a new guidebook like you're talking about early on you can tell you can figure out the difference yeah it took me a while as a kid my plus my dad was arguing with me that uh we don't really have permit in texas very much so <laughs> <laughs> i'll never forget this but i'm a little smart aleck at six years old going dad but it could be a permit you know <laughs> uh you know but it's, that's why you, you know latin names science names are used because i mean i was with the fishing guy one time at a, at a rig and he he hooks into a big jack he starts calling a permit i got a permit i said that is a jack crevel i mean but uh yeah you know so everybody's got their names that's why it's so difficult to uh you know regional names always fascinate me with fish but there's that link and uh, for people listening that really don't know about permit, if you probably know about a pompano, so a very similar fish, get a lot bigger. Uh, and that has to be a management challenge at some level in Florida still because the pompano is such an important fishery for people like fishing from the shore and stuff. Yeah, it is. And uh, and permit are occasionally caught in that, that fishery, mm-hmm. um, but not uh, nearly to the extent. The biggest issue with the mixing of permit and pompano 
um, is actually part of the commercial fishery. Mm. Uh, there's an area off the southwest coast of Florida um, where the commercial fishery is allowed to use uh, nets for pompano, uh, and there can be uh, permit mixed in. So there was a um, there was an allowance for some bycatch of permit in that uh, pompano fishery, uh, but unfortunately, that's uh, some of the Commercial fishermen have kind of taken advantage of that loophole and are actually purposefully netting a permit. So in the next uh, year, I think we'll be revisiting revisiting that issue. Well, I mean, we have dolphin-safe tuna. How about permit-safe pompano? I mean, that's not not a bad idea for me, you know? Hey, I just heard one last year. I did a podcast on jaguars on my Higher Calling Wildlife podcast, and Mexico is about to develop jaguar-safe beef. Kid you not. <laughs> so anything wow. anything could happen. Yeah, it's I was like, yeah. holy <laughs> smokes. But uh, you know, these these permit are uh, you know, part of the flat slam and uh I haven't hooked into one yet, but everybody I says says they're frustrating or they're extremely hard fighters in, in comparison to a bonefish in the fight department. What what what's the comparison to a bonefish? Um they're not uh, quite as fast as bonefish, but they're a lot stronger. Okay, um, for sure. And the fight's going to be uh, much longer. You know, bonefish is a few minutes. A permit is going to be uh, much longer. You know, especially depending on where you are. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of. I, <laughs> I kind of call it a bonefish for, for people getting into the flat fishery. Bonefish is kind of the gateway drug. <laughs> I love it. We got the gateway drug is the bone. Well, here's the problem, brother. I caught my first bonefish in April. I'm already going back to the same area to catch a permit. So you're right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, for, for the most part, I mean, it depends on where you are, of course, due to fishing pressure and other issues. But for the most part, if you make a, a good presentation um, to a bonefish you know, with a fly or lure, um, you got a pretty good chance of the fish eating. Mm-hmm. For permit, um, not not so much. Uh, a little more moody, huh? Yeah, especially on the flats. When they're out on the wreck, the reef, um, it's, it's almost like they're a different fish. Um, they're considerably easier to catch. But on the flats, when you're sight fishing for them, yeah, it can be it can be tough. Yeah, you know, it's, you're using a fly. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like it, it's almost, and again, I make a parallel for what I'm used to is redfish. Uh, you get redfish in the shallow water in our marshes in Texas, and it's one of the spookiest fish I've ever been around in my life. Uh, you go offshore to the jetties, and they'll school around the boat and look at you and throw to them. You yeah, know? I mean it's it's crazy, but uh, you know, I guess that has to be part of the allure of catching these things. And uh, you know, I see some monster permit photos out there these fish grow pretty large i mean what would be like a trophy size you know where anyone would say hey that's a trophy size permit well um to a certain extent you know if you're fly fishing especially any permit is a trophy sure <laughs> but um you know if you get a fish that's say over uh 20 pounds then yeah definitely a trophy yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a big fish for any kind of an inland-type fish. I mean, and... It is. It is. I mean, they get up to over over 50 pounds. Um, 
But yeah, if you get a twenty pounder, that's by far a legitimate trophy. Yeah, that's that's a that's a big fish. But you're right, anything with the fly there, especially something so snooty, you know, would be uh well, I'm still stuck on the gateway drug thing because that is so true. Literally, I mean, I was like, well, I got a bonefish. I have to get a permit now. You know? <laughs> oh my god! But, but that's the fun of it. You know, these beautiful fish and uh, you know the habitat they have. Now, you know, you guys have been concerned about some things. There was recently some changes made in the area of the Keys down there. You guys were involved in because of the presence of sharks and spawning and that kind of. Can you explain what happened down there? Sure. Um, we uh, worked with uh, colleagues of BTC. Um, we conducted and funded a study that uh, tracked uh, permit movement. Uh, it started out with what we call dark tag. Um, looks like pieces of white spaghetti mm-hmm. that we stick into the uh, muscular musculature of the fish has an ID code on it. So if somebody recaptures that, um, they let us know and we can figure out the permit's movement pattern. Uh, but then we uh, ramped that up using an acoustic tag mm-hmm. um, which uh, put out a ping a supersonic ping yep. uh, that's coded and then we have uh, receivers placed in strategic locations and in, in underwater and they pick up those pings so that way we can track permit movement and we found a couple of things one is that um, permits have um, pretty high level of what we call site fidelity in other words they have a relatively small home range Okay. Um, and so that becomes important as far as habitat protection in mm-hmm. general. Sure. Um, but then those fish migrate um, to offshore reefs or wrecks to spawn. And we found that uh, 70% of the flats permits that we tracked uh, all went to uh, one location called Western Dry Rock to spawn. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously that's a super important place for the flats permit. But, uh, and even though we had gotten regulations in place so that uh, during spawning season, uh, permit were catch and release only, uh, no harvest, um, uh, it, it turned out that a lot of sharks also show up at those spawning sites when permits are spawning. Mm-hmm. And so um, a subsequent study found that uh, up to 40, 30 to 40% of permits that were hooked at those offshore spawning sites um, were eaten by sharks before they can get landed. Wow. And so that's, you know, essentially the same as a 30 to 40% harvest rate, which is way too high, especially the spawning site. Mm-hmm. And so, um, working with some others, we were able to get the, the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission to, um, close fishing at Western Dry Rocks for the spawning season. Um, you know, because that catcher and elite mortality was so high. How long is that season? It is, uh, for the spawning season, um, I think it's April through July mm-hmm. is what I want to say. I'd have to, to look that up. That's a new regulation. And so that's in effect um, for at least seven years. And the state and uh, we also are um, working on some monitoring studies to uh, determine if the, if the closure is effective. And they'll reevaluate after seven years. Um, and if it's still if it's being shown to be effective, then they'll you know continue that or make it permanent. This is Chester Moore, editor in chief of Texas Fishing Game, the oldest and largest outdoor magazine in Texas, and its sister website, fishgame.com. 
Between these two award-winning outlets, we cover everything outdoors in Texas and beyond. While we provide you with plenty of hook and bullet how-to information, we have committed to our resources to bringing you the most comprehensive coverage of wildlife, habitat, and environmental issues that we can. You can get this award-winning coverage by subscribing to the Texas Fishing Game Print Edition, six issues a year, by calling 800-725-1134. That's 800-725-1134. Or going online to fishgame.com. You can also sign up for our three times per week e-newsletter to stay current on everything affecting fishing, hunting, camping, shooting, and enjoying the glorious great outdoors. There are issues in numerous fisheries right now with uh, mortality from sharks. Uh, I mean, we see it on, on YouTube all the time with tarpon. You know, there's always a hammerhead that seems smacking a big tarpon you're reeling in. And I know the Billfish Foundation has done a few things of concern in different areas over over a shark in terms of, uh, you know, you're releasing a fish that's been played a long time, and a shark can figure out an easy meal pretty quick. Right. And, it's, yeah, the interaction between recreational anglers and, and sharks uh, seems to be becoming more, becoming more prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're finding um, so far, and it's still preliminary, is that they, they seem to be, at least with, uh, the fishery that you know, we work on, the flats fishery, mm-hmm. it seems to be pretty location specific. Okay. So the places like you see the hammerhead attacking uh, tarpon, hooked tarpon, um, they tend to be a handful of, of locations. Okay. Um, so just to give you an idea, um, you're fishing for tarpon in southwest Florida uh, for 15 plus years not in a location that you see those types of shark attacks. Um, I only had one instance of a shark chasing a tarpon. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, it's very location-specific. And we found that out for permit as well. The instance of shark attacks of permit on the flat um, is, is near zero, whereas on some of the wrecks uh, where they go to spawn, um, as I already said already, it, it can be really high. Other wrecks don't seem to have as many sharks. Hmm. Um, so what we're finding is that a lot of yeah it is is location specific. No, on the, the next step, of course, is figuring out what to do about it. Sure. Um, now, on the next level of that, um, uh, you said location specific. Is it species specific on the permit? I mean, or is it like you know sandbars, or is it bulls, or any, anything in particular? Um, it depends on on the on the location, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, the sharks, it's a, it tends to be a mixture of, of species that show up at these locations. Um, so you can't really you make it a species-specific type of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems to be more location-specific. More location-specific. Yeah, you know, you usually catch all kinds of sharks in a place, potentially. But I was like, well, maybe it could be, you know, the hammerheads in certain areas. Now, the thing I see with tarpon, is that potentially lined up with hammerhead migration or anything like that? Uh, are they are they coinciding with tarpon movement, or is that just naturally happening in those areas? Oh, oh yeah, I mean, there's natural predator prey ecology going on there for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you read some of the old writings about tarpon fishing, I talk to some of the old timers, and they'll talk about um, schools of tarpon migrating in from offshore, uh, being hounded by a hammerhead shark. Yeah, gotcha. Um, I've seen uh, while fishing. Numerous times, uh, hammerhead uh, chasing tarpon 
Yeah, and there's no fishing going on. There's no fishermen around at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a it's a natural uh, interaction for sure. Um, but and so I think that the you know the sharks obviously are looking for food, uh, and in a lot of instances um, they're in uh, spots on their own migrations that intersect with tarpon. Uh, in the case of your know, hammerheads and if it's a spot where people are fishing, you know, the hammerheads end up taking advantage of sure. uh, the weakened prey. And it's the same with, with, the, with the sharks um, going after permit mm-hmm. um, that, that have been hooked. Uh, because uh, some other research showed that when uh, permit are caught and released, uh, they do super well as, as far as survival goes. Okay. Um, so it's not like they're getting uh, attacked by sharks after the release, you know, like say you might have a bonefish on the flat and a lemon shark comes in and chases it down. Yep. A permit seemed to be less susceptible to that. So it's mostly the, you know, while they're, while they're hooked yep. um, and don't have that free range of movement yep. that the sharks take advantage. Mm-hmm. You feel that like all of a sudden no, no, no fight going on for a second. <laughs> then you, <laughs> like I've done with red snapper many times offshore, you reel up a what used to be a 20-pound red snapper's head, you know? And yes. And there you go. And that's, and that's unfortunate for a fishery like this. It has its concerns. Now, you've mentioned, you know, medium, sort of medium action. Uh, surf areas are, are crucial. And uh, you got this dry rocks area. So bonefish and tarpon trust mission is to have this great science that can be used for like fishing game departments and others to look at and figure out management strategies for these three flats fish. Um, what are some other concerns? Are there any concerns about like transition zones between maybe the beaches and some of these offshore routes? Are there any areas like that that are like, Hey, we're seeing some development or some problems. Um, at this point, um, we don't see, uh, any, you know, say, habitat or harvest-related issues uh, necessarily, um, you know, in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a big concern in Florida, uh, though, is, is water quality. Yeah. Um, and that is affecting you know, a lot of habitats in the, in the, in the Florida Keys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to that, that is a big concern, not just for permits, but bonefish and tarpon as well. Um, but, uh, you know, the the flats fishery, you know, as far as the effort and catch, um, you know, seems to be, uh, you know, solid as far as not overfishing. Um, we're addressing the issue of, you know, western dry rocks and the, and the spawning. Um, so it's that water quality, uh, that's that affecting habitat that's our biggest concern. Yeah. And I just saw, I mean, in St. Petersburg area, I just saw a big uh, toxic algae bloom or something in the news recently. And you guys have had those mega outbreaks over the last few years with uh, that kind of stuff going on. And uh, now what is your, like with the recreational angler sector, which is pretty much as we listen to this program, what has been the response to these big algae blooms? Is is it kind of getting around to anglers in Florida? Hey, it's not just like bag limits and size limits, but in habitat, but it's also the quality of the water. Is that kind of resonating with anglers in Florida now? It is. Uh, finally, yeah, <laughs> it took a while to get there, but sure. at this point, I think um, a lot of the recreational angling community, um, if not the majority, understand the importance of water quality and, and habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for a lot of 
species. Um, fisheries management, you know, as far as harvest, amount of harvest and that type of thing, um, it's, it's already kind of maxed out. So the declines in fisheries, I think, are mostly pegged to water quality and habitat decline. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, um, yeah, there's a red tide ongoing on the west coast of Florida right now. Um, there's uh, various uh, algae blooms on the east coast of Indian River Lagoon. Um, right now, the key is, uh, is free of algae bloom, but it was only a few years ago that they had that you know, massive problem in Florida Bay that killed a lot of seagrass. Yep. Um, and that's all has to do with you know, water quality. Yeah. Um, so, so hopefully the, the fishing community gets a bit more involved um, in pressuring um, you know, their politicians to get serious about addressing the issues. Well, you know, that, the reason I asked that, because I have had um, some issues communicating that with just, is, you know, things we do in Texas. If I write an article about, you know, speckled trout regulations are going to change, you know, when they moved it from 10 fish to five a day, it was like probably 300 emails, comments on social media. Did one about an oil spill in Galveston Bay. I think we had one comment, you know, uh, and it was by a reef, you know, an oyster reef. There seems to be sometimes a disconnect with some of these water quality issues. And I know in Texas here, we're very industrial on the water. I mean, if you go all along our coast, down to Laguna Madre, you get, you know, there's a lot of refineries and things. And I think there's almost a political divide almost on some of this. And what I tell people, look, clean water isn't a right or a left issue. It's a human issue. It's a natural issue. And uh, at some point, you're going to be able to... You know, you're, you can make it all catch and release and not make a difference if you're going to have water that the fish can't spawn in, the fish can't live in. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I mean, there was, um, you know, a, a huge decline in the bonefish fishery in the Florida Keys, uh, mm-hmm. even though it's catch and release. Yep. Um, there seems to be something um, going on with, with tarpon um, abundance mm-hmm. um, in recent years. The reason that we've been pushing uh, for all these new uh, regulations for permits is because of reports of uh, declines in that fish population. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, all those are um, the bonefish and tarpon are entirely catching release, and for permits, uh, mostly catching release. Uh, so it's not about uh, fisheries management; it's all about habitat and water quality management. There you go. Well, that's a great way to, you know, to kind of wrap this up. And uh, if you don't have quality water, you know, you got a lot of problems. Now, got to end on a positive note, though. So tell me your best uh, permit story or your best permit catch. What's your what's your favorite permit that you've ever caught? Oh, every permit, favorite permit. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess my uh, the one that comes to mind is uh, a handful of years ago, um, I was down in Belize, and we'd finished the research that we were doing. Um, and so I was out fishing uh, for a day and we saw these, uh, three permits coming up over this flat. Um, and they were, uh, super active and they started almost like a daisy chaining, just three of them in this little bit deeper hole. So I threw a, a crab fly in there. Um, and one of the fish ate it right away. Um, and so we we're obviously super excited, but as it was running, um, the fly just popped out. Oh no. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And so we were obviously uh, very disappointed. Heartbreak. Um, but as we were sitting there um, lamenting that, 
the fish turned back around and did exactly the same thing, came back into the, exactly the same hole. Uh, and so I put another cast in there, and, and one of the fish ate it right away again. Well, that's cool. <laughs> and uh, and we, en- we ended up catching that one. Yeah, that was probably about a that's like 18, 20-pound tr- fish. Hey, that's, tra- um, that's like tra- triumph, tragedy back to triumph again, right? Yeah, and to have that happen with permit is that just doesn't. It does usually if you hook one and either they take off, that's it. You know, they don't they don't come back. They're done. They're done. Um, so that was one of those, yeah, one of those moments that yeah, you definitely remember. Someone wants to connect with the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. How do they do that? They can go to our website, um, bpt.org or bonefishtarpontrust.org. Um, and you can read a lot about a lot of the research that we talked about um, on the various pages of the website. Um, you can also join, which would be fantastic. Uh, and if people really want to um, get into the science as well as the fishing side of things, um, they can check out, every three years, we host an international symposium. Um, and that's coming up this November. Um, and so if they go to our website, uh, the banner right in the center of the page is all about the symposium coming up. Yeah, I'm very seriously considering coming to that, trying to work the details out to make that. So that would be yeah, you, you could be a lot of fun. Learn all the science, and you can also interact. We have a a, a flat expo, so a lot of the uh, companies and that are involved with the flats fishery, as well as a lot of the guides, are there as well. No, that so would, a pretty intense couple of days. I'll be down with that, man. Well, we always appreciate your work and appreciate you coming on to Higher Calling Gulf Coast. Yeah, thanks for helping us spread the word. The more we protect our fish, the better fishing will be. Yes, sir. It's been said that bonefish provide us practice. Tarpon provide us excitement. Permit provide us humility. But what can we provide them in return for so enriching our lives? Our support for the science behind the fight. Our support for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Please join us today at BTT.org. These species' well-being depends on it. You've been listening to Higher Calling Gulf Coast with award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist Chester Moore. Email him at chester at chestermoore.com. Check out his wildlife writings at highercalling.net and find him at D. Chester Moore on Instagram.